China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Ling Chun, an assistant professor of political economy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Today we'll be discussing her recent co-authored paper, Capital Mobility and Taxation, State Business Collusion in China, which was published in International Studies Quarterly. Ling, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jude. Very honored to be here. I wanted to start by asking about your research background and research interests. How did you become interested in China's political economy, and uh, how did you get on the, the current research track you're on? Sure. That may be a, a long story, but I'll try to keep it short. That I started my interest in political economy back in my college years. I was uh, I did my college in Peking University. I grew up in China. In that time, I was mostly interested in East Asian countries um, because I was in China. So China wasn't much of a puzzle for me until I exited China and, and came to North America for my graduate degree, for my PhD degree. I felt that I definitely need to apply uh, my um, whatever theories I learned in political economy to the China case. And that's when I started to focus on political economy of China. And more broadly, my interest is in uh, state business relations. So anything that happened between state and business are of interest to me, such as industrial policies, tax policies, economic policies, or uh, any kind of uh, economic reforms all falls within the range of my uh, research interest. So this particular paper that we're discussing today is uh, part of my uh, larger project on authoritarian capitalism and part, uh, also part of the larger project on how we understand uh, tax incentives and tax policies. So the paper that we're going to discuss, which I should say for uh, readers, we'll put a link to it, but it's helpfully uh, ungated so you can read it in full and for free uh, on the International uh, Studies Quarterly website. But it is a really, really fascinating look into the interactions between Chinese firms and local governments in China. And you've looked at this huge set of you know 780,000 firms. And it tells a really important story about the relationship between capital mobility and the amount of tax revenue that can be extracted from them. But before we get into that, your paper is in tension with a fairly standard way that we would think about the relationship between tax rates and the mobility or of capital. So can you first, before we get into your paper, can you lay out the standard way that we frame the relationship between the ability of a, of a political entity to extract tax revenue and what some of the limitations are based on the you know, mobility of, of capital? Sure. Um, so, yeah, first of all, this paper is open access, free open access. Anybody can access it. They just won an APSA award, um, American Political Science Association. So anybody who's interested can freely download it. And this is a terrific question to start with, that con- conventional wisdom does say that mobility tends to lower tax rates. And the reason is straightforward and simple is it's basically what Al- Albert Hirschman put is you have the choice of voice or exit. When capital is not happy, when you tax me too much, I can just flee to a different locality, a different country. And therefore, mobile capital, like 
companies that has more mobile capital tends to have more bargaining power because they can just run away anytime if you、uh, try to tax me more and locate us relocate us somewhere that has lower taxes. So this is the com- conventional wisdom, but it had, does has its limitations. One big thing is if you think about it, a the business needs to have the choice of exit, and b the business does not only have the choice of exit; it has a lot of Other strategies that are available, so there really should be more strategic interaction between government and business, and such strategies should vary among different countries. Especially here, we're looking at OECD countries and non-OECD countries. So it's not necessarily the case that、um, in this case that the mobile capital will have more. Advantage. They only have advantage when exit is the only strategy. But when you have multiple strategies, such as exit, such as you can bribe the government officials, such as can you know you can try to find other ways to lower your taxation, then the, the story changes. And can you just quickly comment on the types of data that are used or often used in constructing the traditional story? The common data usually used for the traditional story when we're testing、uh, the so-called hypothesis or、uh, tend to be cross-country. That means that they tend to be at a macro level, where each country is just one data point, and then well, of course cross、uh, many countries. We have about one hundred ninety-six countries in the world, but still, it's not a too large a number. Then we we observe across many years, but still, it's at a macro level. It's not at The micro firm level, it's definitely not within country, so it doesn't hold constant many other intervening factors that we don't know. One of those, of course, being regime type or, or political system, right? So comparing average tax rate or a statutory tax rate in the United States to a tax rate in, you know, Venezuela, and trying to extract a story about, you know, the relationship between tax rates and capital mobility is difficult. Into this. Argument your paper comes in. So first, can I ask you before we get to the the thesis, what was your data set or, or what data did you were you able to rely on for for the research that underpinned this paper? So the data set I'm currently drawing on is the China Industrial Survey. Sometimes it's called otherwise or called Industrial Census.、Uh, mostly it involves all the above scale firms in China. Uh, across all、uh, jurisdictions, where when wherever you can、uh, gather data, and it's basically gathered by China,、uh, the National Bureau of Statistics, and then they send out teams provincially. Then the provincial teams send out local teams, and the, the local teams、um, go to firms and ask firm to report data. So it's a very comprehensive data.、Um, sometimes they call it survey, but it's actually not like a randomly sampled several thousand firms sur-、uh, survey. It's、um, a very comprehensive、uh, industrial census. And what this gives then is the ability to hold constant the political system, and then sort of isolate more narrowly how. Tax rates and capital mobility, and tell a more detailed picture. So, maybe I can just ask you at a at a top line level, what is the main argument of the paper? What is the main finding of the paper? Well, the main finding is simply that overall in China, it's you know really the opposite of a traditional story. 
that mobility didn't seem to help firms is actually a, a disadvantage for firms, and that when you're more fixed, right, less mobile, more fixed, actually you have lower effective tax rates. So that's the overall big story that we find, and this big story also. Fits into some earlier sporadic finding of of scholars, not their main finding, but sporadic that they when they accidentally compare things across country, they did find that non OECD countries and OECD countries differ in terms of the uh, the relationship between mobility and tax, and they they just didn't know the reason. So that's why we 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 says you know China, the largest developing country, the second largest economy. Right now, we're looking at it, and we want to tell you why this story. Why this is the story? And of course, we're fortunate enough to have this industrial census data, which essentially have seven hundred eighty thousand unique firms across many years. That gave us like two million observations. So, can we unpack that a little bit? That's surprising. So, you know, Jude Blanchett runs this small startup. It's pretty easy for me to move around. It's just me, five employees, and a, a few chairs and desks. So I'm I'm not particularly tied anywhere. How is it that I'm likely to be paying a higher tax rate than the Ling Chun company, which has you know a huge factory, you know tons of tons of fixed capital and equipment? It would seem to me that it would be easier to extract taxes and rents from you because you can't really go anywhere except at significant cost, whereas I can just pick up and leave. Overnight, so so how the heck is the standard theory not applying here? Well, that's that's a great question, and you know, in this case, the Lingcheng Company, which is the company that has more fixed capital, actually have the commitment to stay here longer. Therefore, my company can actually pay bribes. Can um, you know, go? I can go to banquet with local officials, not just local officials at the tax bureau, but local officials in other economic departments, which are in charge of issuing these tax break policies. And I actually have better information after breaking these ties with、um, officials because、uh, I have more information, knowing what are the new tax reduction policy and tax break policies that you may. Actually, not know. I am more willing than you to actually spend money on this kind of networks because I'm here longer and I have already have my startup costs and、I、have my sign costs and all those. It's harder for me to move to other locations. Now, also from the viewpoint of a local official, the local official is also more willing to. Engage with bribing, collusion, corruption with me because they know that just by looking at my company, they know that I'm gonna be here longer. And why would they give you some tax break? Basically, if you don't have tax break, you're paying the you know original、um, corporate income tax, right? Whatever the standard is, why would they have incentive to give it to you if they know that you're gonna be you know going somewhere else tomorrow, right? That's a waste of their effort. So that's the story that I'm trying to tell. So it's as much a story about the unique aspects of business state relations in China, right? And how local officials utilize tax breaks as ways to to extract rents, whether that's in the old heady days before the anti-corruption campaign, which we'll talk about. They would, you know, they would be able to extract rents via bribery banquets, whereas smaller firms, just as you say, are, are not going to be. Not going to build those sorts of relationships over time, so therefore they eat the higher the higher tax rates. The thing I I understand the first half of that story, which is why sort of larger 
you know, fixed capital companies are able to depress the tax rate through through relations and, and collusion and bribery. The second half of that I struggle with because why is there not a more pronounced story of mobile firms? Why are they staying in these jurisdictions and paying higher tax rates? Why aren't they just leaving and finding, searching for, for lower tax rates? So one is a story about local relations between fixed capital companies and local officials. But the other story, wouldn't that be about intra-provincial or intra-locality tax competition? Why would a mobile capital firm stay around and pay a higher tax rate? Why don't I just go move to Zhengzhou where I can enjoy a lower tax rate? Yeah, but uh, Zhengzhou doesn't have the <laughs> the infrastructure set up that we're at one. So, so that's why that that part of another uh, uh, assumption here, um, the classical story is that you can just well the tax is too high, I move somewhere else, right? That's the the typical assumption. But no, there's other things you may be um, attached to um, that you cannot find in a different locality. And also there is like barriers for you to access to a different locality, especially in countries like China uh, and Brazil and those other the countries where you cannot just easily set up a company as a standard story. You have to have local connections. And in this case, the mobile company doesn't have much, even doesn't even have much local connection here. And not to even speak to move to a new location where it's a completely a new environment. And it has to have a lot of cost to set up a new company as well. How does the time horizon of local officials play into this story? You know, as we were talking about before we started recording, you know, local officials shouldn't be in their position any more than five years, but the kind of average seems to be, you know, three years. Imagine a world in which local officials were staying on average 10 years. Would that have any effect on on the overall story or do you think this would stay pretty much the same? Well, when we talk about local officials, right, um, the standard five-year term actually apply for to uh, mayors and party secretaries uh, of the city. Uh, so, if uh, and they, that's a great point that if their uh, standard term limit has increased to ten years, that will actually increase the amount of time they have commitment to a locality. They stay in a locality. That will benefit those fixed asset firms even more because here they see a more longer term horizon of um, how much you bribe me, how much tax break I can give you. Yeah, so that's the story. But we also need to keep in mind that when we talk about local officials, they're not just mayors and party secretaries. There are officials that work for uh, tax bureaus, there's officials that are work for, um, it used to be the uh, there, the local N- NDRC, there is uh, officials that work for an economic trade committee, there are uh, officials work for science and technology uh, bureau. All these officials are not uh, mayors and party secretaries, and they might be around the locality for quite a while. And that also contribute to uh, the story of our argument. One of the other really interesting aspects of this paper was about the role of the anti-corruption campaign and how that has affected a lot of the dynamics which you explore in the paper. And of course, you have data that you're using, which is mid-1990s to 2007. Then you have another data set that's 2009 to 2017. I think that's the China Stock Market and Accounting Research Database. So covering a very long time period. It would seem that the anti-corruption campaign would attack many of the elements of this 
business state collusion, which you describe fixed capital firms as utilizing to lower their effective tax rates vis-a-vis, you know, more higher mobility firms. What was the sort of functional effect of of the anti-corruption campaign? And is that observable at all in the data? Yes, definitely. So this is basically a tipping point where you find that after the anti-corruption campaign, which is already towards the later period of our entire data set, and roughly it's after 2013, 14-ish, that the kind of uh, state business collusion started to be constrained. That is to say that officials and business are no longer like openly go to banquets and uh, openly bribing with each other and they're less comfortable doing so. And they, especially from the official side, they're sort of paralyzed and they would rather not make mistakes and be safe. Uh, so that has effects that sort of curtailed the availability of the strategy of networking and bribing and, and collusion between state and business and make so it makes uh, what we observe about the advantage of the fixed asset firms less salient. So that's that's the uh, biggest uh, tipping point over time for our story. You know, you make an argument near the end of the paper, which I found really interesting, uh, which I, when I read it seemed the sentence seems obvious, but but I hadn't thought of it till you summarize it, which is you say, one might see investments in political connections as another type of taxation. We might consider the sum of investments in government relationships plus income taxes as the total tax bill. So I wonder, it's interesting because in some way it sounds like the local, the sort of larger fixed capital firms don't necessarily see it this way. Is that a sort of a limitation in how you know firms are are engaging this? Because you're right, it's really just the total amount of money that they would be outlaying. And that sounds like there's, for a lot of these firms, there's just two different categories. There's the sort of formal tax bill, and then there's the the informal tax bill, which is just sustaining sustaining that relationship. So I wonder, you know, uh, I wonder, is it the case that the sort of more mobile capital companies do we know if their actual total tax bill is more or less than these these larger companies, if we look at this from a total tax bill perspective? Yeah, that's a point that my co-author and I mentioned towards the conclusion, because we th- thought that's something that we could look into the future. Um, I, by the way, I called this paper with um, Florian Hallenbach, he's a scholar, and um, I, I work with him for... Um, five years to publish this paper. So, of course, there's a lot of uh, remaining questions. And one of the questions is that, you know, how to, how do we know the total cost? Uh, why it's not, this is not another form of taxation, whether you have to work hard to keep up with your relationship with the officials. We weren't able to directly compare the cost, partly because we do not know what is exactly the, the amount of the cost. We can measure part of the, you know, bribing costs through um, some of the uh, the fees they, they expend for eat and drink. You know, there's a lot of uh, measurement nowadays for economists about they, they measure the eat and drink fee as a, a proximate measurement of corruption. But um, there's also consumption of time and there's a lot of other costs. It's, it's hard to compare. But I suspect that in their head, you know, entrepreneurs are not stupid. They In their head, they did a calculation. They figured that when they lower their tax rates from 20% to 15%, that's a total 5% of tax reduction, whereas in exchange, they probably give the local official 10000 
right? But that's whatever the reduction is more than the ten thousand. That's what what's typically in their heads, and that's how typically do they have a you know official, especially you know running between these um uh, between the company and the government agency that are in charge of you know giving them packets. Sometimes just purely cash, to be honest, because I I've interviewed I did field work and interviewed some of these people, and some sometimes it's you know bank transfer or other kind of reimbursement. But I bet that they have probably done individual entrepreneurs have done in their <laughs> head what the the calculation, and I suspect that they know that the cost is less compared to the tax that saves. So Xi Jinping has, you know, put in this anti-corruption campaign. You're already starting to see effects of that in the data that you had, which which some of it ran up until pretty recently, 20, 2017. What do you think is going to be the longer term implications for tax rates in this now much more scrutinized environment of business state relations? Assuming that the anti-corruption campaign stays a sort of institutionalized part of political culture in China and that officials at the margin are more weary of running afoul of, uh, you know, Zhong Jiwei, what do you think will be the, the practical effects on, on tax rates? Do we see a, a sort of a, a shrinking of the delta between tax rates paid by larger fixed capital firms and more mobile capital firms? What do you expect? Yeah, so it'll sort of gradually make the advantage of the fixed firms, fixed asset firms gradually disappear, or even in some of the more fiscally transparent cities, uh, we would expect to see the all of a sudden, like for once that traditional theory started work that they make even get mobile cap, uh, capital more advantage when the fixed asset firms have less of an option of simply just um, lower tax rates through, through bribing. So the anti-corruption campaign is not just only an overarching campaign that shaped the environment, but also they have more detailed policies such as, you know, in as, as early as 2014, there's policy from the state council um, saying that your local officials should not be uh, randomly hand out tax break policies, um, regardless of what the really the stipulation is. It, they're trying to do that. Of course, there's a lot of difficulty for business at that time. Some businesses even try to sue the government because they have promised a tax break. But it's also, it's a little bit in 2015, they gave them a little bit grace period. But overall, also, in the, the 18th Party Congress, the third plan of the 18th Party Congress, they have this initiative of, build, of increasing trans, fiscal transparency. They uh, try to launch fiscal transparency reform across major cities. And then you will see, you actually started to see that in those cities that's more fiscally transparent, that's also our, one of our findings, is that in cities that are more fiscally transparent, you see the there is less advantage, much less advantage for fixed asset firms. Ling Chen, I want to uh, thank you. This is such a really interesting paper, which, as we were saying before, uh, although the, the top line title is about capital mobility and taxation, this is also a really interesting paper for anyone who is studying the long tail impact of the anti-corruption campaign and the changing nature of, of business state relations in China and and folks who go to Ling's personal website will see, you know, this larger project of sort of authoritarian capitalism or or understanding China's unique 
you know, state capitalist system and institutions. Ling is just doing phenomenal work on this. And a plug to a paper that I haven't read it yet, but I know it's going to be great, which is she's got a paper coming up in Perspectives on Politics coming out later this year, titled right now, Getting China's Political Economy Right, State Business and Authoritarian Capitalism. And I know for folks who are following this space, and there, there are a lot of people interested in this, people are going to want to uh, make sure that they're marking their calendars to to read Ling's paper um, when that one comes out later this year. Uh, so Ling, really want to thank you for your time. Thank you for your just fantastic research. And I, I look forward to uh, I look forward to that perspective on politics paper. Thanks very much, Jude. And um, yeah, you and anyone else that are interested in this project of authoritarian capitalism are welcome to uh, check my website. Um, the paper is forthcoming later, um, roughly December this year. And it's going to be open access as well, just like this paper we're discussing today. Well, thank you very much for having me here, and uh, we look forward to discussing uh, more papers and research in the future. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 